don't worry, this is supplemental information. I'm, we're not going to get to it, so we'll get you out in time. Um, interesting thing occurred on uh, Friday night. I got off work a little bit late. I came home, and one of my neighbors called me up and said, uh, hey, have you seen Robert lately? He was my next-door neighbor. And I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, he didn't get his garbage out. So I said, well, let me go over and check. I went over, found Robert dead, lying on his living room floor, probably passed away early Thursday morning. Um, the only reason why I'm saying that is it just sobered me. Whether you have one breath or 10 breaths or 10,000 breaths left, every single one is a gift from the Lord. Uh, none of us know when he's going to call us. If he calls us today, he does us no harm. He does us no foul. If he waits 30 years, he does us no foul. We are his. Uh, from start to finish, we are his. And the day that he has appointed for us is not for our convenience, but for his glory. Bow your heads, please. Lord God. Permit me today to testify about who you are and what we would be without you. Reveal to us just a small part, a little glimpse of your glory, which is your holiness revealed. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts so that we may see the splendor of your majesty and by seeing your majesty have our hearts and lives changed. Thank you. O dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. That's from Song of Solomon's chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. On December the 11th, 1998, the first interplanetary weather satellite, where is he going from here, was launched sitting atop a Delta II rocket from Complex 17. You love the date, though, December the 11th? Good date. That's our birthdays. We share the same birthday. <laughs> from Cape Canaveral Air Station in Florida, it's Destiny Mars. The satellite was named the Mars Climate Orbiter or MCO. Nine and a half months later, on September, in September of 1999, the MCO was to fire its main engine thrusters one last time to achieve an elliptical orbit around Mars. The spacecraft was to skim the upper atmosphere of Mars for several weeks in order to switch to a stable circular orbit using a technique called aerobraking. At 900 hours, 4 minutes, 52 seconds on September 23, 1999, all communication signals from the satellite were lost. Later, it was discovered that the satellite had entered the Martian atmosphere at approximately 56 kilometers above the red planet instead of the 226 kilometers as planned. The phase one NASA investigative report blamed the root cause on small forces. 
They also acknowledged eight other contributing factors. These small forces were the result of up to 14 improper thruster firings that were made over the course of the nine-month journey from Earth to Mars. It was also discovered that the technicians sending the commands to the satellite to fire the thrusters, thrusters issued the commands in English foot-pounds instead of metric newtons. One English foot-pound equals 4.5 metric newtons. The $125 million satellite was lost. They really don't know whether it crashed into the planet or whether it skipped and is on its way out to the outer edges of the, our solar system. They have no idea where it is. I will be preaching from the book of Judges. Uh, turn with me, please, to Judges chapter 10, starting with verse 6. I'm going to read through Judges chapter 12, verse 6, but we're going to skip some of this story of Jephthah. Some of it doesn't really need to be discussed right here at this moment. But uh, turn with me, please, Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the other gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Uh, the NIV said, his soul, meaning God, his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. The Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped against Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the people... The leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all of Gilead. 
Now Jephthah, starting with chapter 11, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him other sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance with us, for you are a son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, Come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home and fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not say as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words to the Lord at Mitzpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? I'd like you to skip, please, to verse 28. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words that Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, Manasseh, passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up, a burnt offering. So the Lord gave them into his hands. And he struck them from Aor to to Minioth, Twenty cities as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Go to chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed the Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and you did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said, I and my people were in great dispute, had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life into my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim. 
you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of Jordan. At that time, 42,000 Ephraimites fell. Jephthah was an unlikely candidate to be used of God to deliver the Ammonites. The book of Judges is full of unlikely candidates to be used of God. The book of Judges repeats the story, the same story, 12 times. God's people become unfaithful to their God by magnifying and worshiping other gods, either alongside of him, would be pantheism, or above him. They make God look small. God gets angry when he looks small. God then delivers them into the hand of their enemies. Once sufficiently oppressed, the people of Israel in the midst of their suffering repent. They turn from their foreign gods. They seek God's favor through repentance, prayer, supplication, fasting, destroying their idols. God then raises up a judge, not a judge as we know it, but a military political leader who knows and esteems God and who loves God. God does this in order to deliver them from their oppression and from their oppressors. Once the judge dies, and after they become comfortable and complacent, the process starts over. Jephthah was the eighth judge of twelve judges mentions, unless you include Barak and Abimelech, who were not specifically listed as judges. Uh, If you count them, he would be ten out of fourteen. Jephthah was the son of Gilead, of the half-tribe of Manasseh. Jephthah was a mighty warrior, but he was also the son of a prostitute. His half-brothers coveted his their father's inheritance, and being jealous of Jephthah's abilities, saw him as a threat to their financial and material security and drove him away. He fled from them and moved to the land of Tob. Once in Tob, he was appreciated as a capable warrior and leader, and became a magnet for, as the Bible refers to, empty-headed or worthless men. The scriptures state in Judges chapter 10, 7, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Amorites for 18 years. The people then repent of their sins. The elders of Gilead recalled Jephthah from exile. They made him their leader. God delivers the Ammonites into their hand. And after the defeat of the Ammonites by the hand of God through, the, through Jephthah, the tribe of Ephraim crosses the Jordan to fight with Jephthah and the Gileadites. The Ephraimites' pride was hurt. They were looking for an opportunity to share in the spoils of the victory of war, but they didn't want to take the risks involved. This is not the first time the Ephraimites behaved in such a manner. In the book of Joshua, chapter 17, verse 14, the tribe of Ephraim came along with some of the half-tribe of Manassas to complain to Joshua about the size of their inheritance in the land. Joshua, also being an Ephraimite, 
answers them rather stiffly and directly and says, paraphrased, you're big boys, go take what you want. In the book of Judges, chapter 8, the tribe of Ephraim, same situation, fiercely complains to Gideon after he conquered the Midianites. The Ephraimites were upset they weren't invited to the battle. Same thing as Jephthah. Gideon was a diplomat. Gideon gave them a soft answer that smoothed their ruffled feathers. They left Gideon satisfied with no more bloodshed that their honor had not been seriously hurt. Same situation occurs with Jephthah, where the tribe of Ephraim again comes grumbling and complaining about an imaginary self-serving offense that they were not invited to the battle. And they threatened to burn Jephthah's house down around him. Jephthah, unlike Joshua and unlike Gideon, lacks diplomacy. (laughs) Jephthah, with God's divine authority and help, kills 42,000 of them that day. The Ephraimites are depicted in Scripture many times as being proud, arrogant, habitual complainers. They are mocked. They mocked and scorned the efforts of Hezekiah to bring them back to God in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 10. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, Ephraim joins with Syria to attack Judah. Isaiah eleven thirteen mentions the jealousy that Ephraim always has against Judah. In the book of Isaiah, or Hosea, chapter 7, verse 8, God says to Ephraim, You are a pancake cooked on one side. (laughs) In 1 Kings 11.26, David's grandson, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes succession of the throne. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite, rebels against Rehoboam and takes the northern ten tribes away from Israel. Jeroboam refuses to let the Israelites serve God. The Israelite Levitical priests flee the northern tribes and come and live in Judah because of Jeroboam's reform. Offshoot, and Mark, this is free, no charge for this one. According to the book of Jasher, which is an apocryphal book, um, it is mentioned in the book of Joshua, But whether this Jasher, this copy of Jasher we have is actually accurate or not is questionable. But in the book of Jasher, chapter 75, Jasher mentions that the tribe of Ephraim, after 400 years in captivity, gets upset. They leave. They go and attack the Philistines in Gath and die. So whether that's true, whether that happened, or whether that didn't happen, the Evidently, the rabbinical rabbis don't look... They, they, they don't have anything good to say about Ephraim. They do like Joshua. They do like the original Ephraim. And they do say that sometime when the Messiah returns, that Ephraim will return and be converted. That was free. <laughs> Ephraim, the word Ephraim in the Bible, when Jacob blesses Ephraim, Ephraim means fruitful bough or double fruit. So the name Ephraim means fruit. Ephraim's complaining, arrogancy and jealousy, God evidently had enough of them. 
Do you remember uh, Popeye? Brutus would push Popeye to the limit, and Popeye would say, I've had all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. Well, this is God with Ephraim. He's had all he can stand, and he can't stand no more. It is by no mere coincidence that the word that God uses to betray the Ephraimites to the Gileadites was the word shibboleth. The word shibboleth can be translated heads of grain. Jonathan Edward writes in his book, you'll like this, this is for you, this is like pandering. (laughs) Jonathan Edward writes in his book, Religious Affections, as the ear of the fruit which distinguishes the wheat from the tares, so this is the true shibboleth that he who stands as judge at the passage of the Jordan makes us use makes use to distinguish those that shall pass over Jordan into the true Canaan from those that should be slain at the passages. For the Hebrew word shibboleth signifies ear of corn or ear of grain. And perhaps the more, more full pronunciation of Jephthah's friends, shibboleth may represent a full ear with fruit in it, typifying the fruits of friends, the friends of Christ. The antitype of Jephthah and the more lean pronunciation, Sibboleth, of the Ephraimites, his enemies, may represent their empty ears, typifying the show of religion in hypocrisy without substance or fruit. This is agreeable to the doctrine we are abundantly taught in Scripture, that he who is set to judge those that pass through death, whether they have the right to enter into the heavenly Canaan or no, or whether they should be slain, will judge every man according to his works. In Matthew 7.20, Jesus says, You will know them by their fruit. Matthew 7.17-21 through 21. So every healthy air tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Greek word for fruit here used in Matthew is karpos, which also includes heads of grain. I don't say that Jesus did, but it is quite possible Jesus using a Hebrew form of homiletics may have easily said to his disciples, you will know them by their shibboleths. God has never tolerated murmuring or complaining by his people indefinitely. We are continually warned in both the Old and the New Testaments. In Exodus 17, the people complained against Moses at Massa and Meribah. They said to Moses, give us water. Imagine you have a family. It's a perfect family. Eight boys, four girls. Mother-in-law lives with you. You have a tent. Some camels, goats, sheep, cows, oxen, dogs, no cats. The only one that is the least bit content in the group are the camels. Your mother-in-law realizes you're all going to die in the desert. 
and it's Moses' fault. You gather a couple of your neighbors together. You're going to form a committee. You go complain to Moses. We want water. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Let's have an investigation. One of them's Cuban. Lucy, you've got a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> when you're this thirsty, would you think that complaining about a lack of water is a reasonable response to a serious physical need? What's wrong with wanting water for your kids? In Deuteronomy 17, Moses says to the people in answer to their complaints, Why test the Lord? In Deuteronomy 6.16, they are warned, Do not put me to the test as you did at Massa. Deuteronomy 9.22, it says, At Massa, they provoked the Lord to wrath. In Psalms 95.8, it says, We are warned, Do not harden your hearts as in Massa and Meribah. What's wrong with wanting water for your family when your kids are thirsty? Tell me, what's wrong? What was wrong when they complained against Moses, they were actually complaining against God. They were making God look small, and God does not like to look small. In Psalm 34, the psalmist says, Come magnify the Lord with me. Psalm 69, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 70, let God be magnified. There are many scriptures that declare we are to magnify the Lord and warn of great consequences if we don't. John Piper describes two ways to magnify an object. One would be with a microscope, the other with a telescope. John Piper explains that when you magnify something with a microscope, you take something that is teeny-weeny, that's the word he uses, and you make it look larger than it is. When you take something in a telescope, you take an object that is extremely large but looks very small to the naked eye and make it look more like what it is. John Piper goes on to say that to examine and magnify God in a microscope is blasphemy. How do you make God look larger than he is? Our God is already so large that the only way we can magnify him is through a telescope. Because he is so large, we need something to make him look more like what he is. When we grumble and complain, we magnify ourselves or our circumstances and make God appear smaller than he is. Again, God does not like it when he is made to look small. God is sovereign Lord over all creation. If we live or we die... It's up to him. We're commanded in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without murmuring and questioning that ye may become blameless and harmless children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you will be seen as lights in the world. When we are thankful and grateful in all things, we magnify God. And declare him to be more like what he really is. We are like neon lights declaring to the world his sovereignty, his power, his infinite worth. First Chronicles 16.8 Give thanks to the Lord and make known his wonderful deeds. Psalm 9.1 1, 
I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and make known his wonderful deeds. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When we complain about our government or political leaders, ouch, we declare our God to be very small. Proverbs 21.1, do you believe it? Do you believe Proverbs 21.1? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 4.25, the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he will. Daniel 4.35, the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? When we complain about our jobs, our families, our wives, our husbands, parents, everything from stink bugs to potholes, we complain about God and make him appear smaller than he is. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you have created all things, and by your will, stink bugs, by your will, they were and are created. Each and every day we encounter various trials and tests. Each and every day we are given opportunities to declare to the, the world that not only does our God live, but that he reigns supreme in all, all the affairs of men. We are given opportunities to declare his infinite worth and his value by acknowledging him in all things. Romans 8.28 and 8.29 are just one of the sacred pillars we have declaring the heart and the promise of God. And we know to those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. One day we will stand in judgment before the throne our fruit will be examined, but make no mistake, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I want to be perfectly clear. One of the battle cries during the, Re the Reformation was faith by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 7 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. My emphasis and this faith is not your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should also walk in them. Yes, you who have entrusted your salvation to Christ have been saved through faith alone. But the real authentic faith that saves is never found alone. Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. They seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 Ephraimites fell. Do you have the fruit that bears witness and testifies to a thankful and grateful heart? 
Have you been saved by faith alone? And have the fruit that testifies to the grace that you claim to have? Or is your fruit more of the grumbling and complaining type? Though it's not up here, and this was a test to see if anyone would grumble and complain that they didn't have a handout. <laughs> Lessons for our lives. God commands us to be thankful at all times and for all things. Though we are commanded, I implore you, do not assume that you have the ability, apart from God's indwelling spirit, to obey any of his commands. The command is holy, the command is righteous, the command is good. God is just in commanding any of us to do that which we are not able to do apart from Him. St. Augustine said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. The law was given to show what sin was, what sin is. It is, it is just a mirror. When I wake up in the morning and I see I need to shave, I don't take the mirror off the wall and shave with it. That's not what the mirror is for. That's what a razor is for. Two, God warns us through many examples and warns us of the consequences of grumbling and complaining. For when we complain, we complain about him and make him look smaller than he is. Remember, God gets angry when he is made to look small. Three, even the smallest complaint may have consequences that are far-reaching and unseen. Use every opportunity you have to magnify God. The little foxes that destroy the vineyards, just like the small forces over a nine-month period, destroyed the Mars orbiter. $125 million satellite was lost. How does that compare with your soul? Four, cling to the cross. Trust in the cross. Boast in the cross. For in the death of Christ and his resurrection, you will find life. A paraphrase from Jonathan Edwards for the ends why God created the earth. God, Jonathan says, God needs nothing from us. For he takes pleasure and is sufficient in himself. From the beginning, God was sufficient and had enough pleasure in himself. But yet God truly is pleased in us. For God takes pleasure in that which he does through us. And then he rewards us for that which he does through us. There is nothing that we will take to heaven that we can get credit for. There is nothing that God owes us. For everything that we have is his. And if any of you look at the cross and pity Christ, I want you to remember it was Christ pitying you is the reason he was there, not for you to pity him. Five and last, Lord God, thank you for permitting me today to testify about who you are and what we would be without you. Continue to reveal to us just a small part, a little glimpse of your glory, which is your holiness revealed. Continue to open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts that we may see the splendor of your majesty and by seeing your majesty have our hearts and lives changed. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. Thank you.